I am so thankful to be able to do this workshop. We actually just moved uh, this last Saturday, it hasn't even been a week, um, to Des Moines this last week to be a part of the Engage Network uh, through Sailorville Church. My husband will be training for about 18 months um, and then, Lord willing, planting a church um, somewhere in Iowa. Um, and we just left an incredible church of 12 years. So if I burst into tears somewhere through this workshop, you'll know why. Um, we have a saying in our house when uh, my husband comes home and he'll, he'll ask me, how are you? And I say, fine, which stands for frustrated, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. And I feel all those things with all these changes, but there's grace for each new day. And I'm growing in my walk with the Lord. Um, some of you know me, but a lot of you do not know who I am. Um, so I just wanted to share a few things with you about things that I love. Uh, first, I love my husband, Stephen. We've been married 15 years, and we were actually contenders together uh, 18 years ago. And God really brought us together that summer as contenders. And Stephen actually proposed to me right down here in the chapel because this place is very special to us. So um, I love our five children, Samuel, Benjamin, Jariah, Isaiah, and Emma Grace Moore, if you ask her what her name is. Um, I love how different they are and how much fun it is to be their mom, and I have a chance to homeschool them. I love summer. Fall used to be my favorite until I became a homeschool mom, and now summer is my favorite. Um, I love pumpkin spice lattes. This is season for that. I love coffee and better sharing a cup of coffee with a friend and talking about what God's doing in their lives. I have loved ministry that God's allowed us to have at Horton Baptist Church and the ladies' Bible studies that we had while I was there. That was probably one of the greatest privileges that God gave me was just to be able to study the word with my sisters in Christ. I love God's word, and I love it when we as ladies can dig into God's word and actually learn what it has to say. I feel like sometimes there's a double standard when it comes to men um, teaching the word. We want them to, to study passages of scripture, but when it comes to women, I feel like sometimes we're far too easily pleased with fluff. Um, and I want us to dig into God's word and, and to learn for ourselves what it says. Um, we were homeschooled, I was homeschooled growing up, and I remember whenever I would ask my mom, what does a word mean, or how do you spell it, and she would always say the same thing, go look it up. And I hated that answer, because I just wanted her to give me the answer. But she knew if I looked it up, I would be more likely to remember it, and then when it came time to remember it again, um, I would remember how to spell it. And I think the same is true with God's word. If we're just fed it all the time and don't do the work for ourselves, we are less likely to remember it. There's two reasons I wanted to teach the book of Jude. First, I want you to see how fun it is to learn God's word one book at a time. Um, going through a book, I feel like, is the best way. You can't skip over hard passages. You can't skip over things you don't understand. You've got to wrestle with it. Um, and I tend to remember things when I study it in chunks. Um, the second reason is that Jude is very applicable to us today. Um, maybe you've never taken the time to study Jude. Ligon Duncan says this, Here's Jude, speaking to a group of Christians who lived in a pluralistic society, a relativistic culture, and followed after many gods in many truths and many fashions and fads, and saying, contend for the truth. And lo and behold, here we are, 2,000 years later, in a culture that's very relativistic and pluralistic, following after many fads and many fashions and many gods. 
And Jude is saying to us again, care about the truth, cling to the truth, believe the truth, be savvy enough about the truth that you can tell a false teacher from a faithful prophet. Stick close to the Bible and stay close to God's word. Stay close to Jesus Christ. He's saying all these things and the word is just as fresh today as when he spoke it. So let's pray and we're going to unpack the book of Jude. Dear Father, I do thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to get away from um, busy schedules, um, many things that are going on in our lives, to come away and to learn from you and to sit at your feet. Lord, I am, I am a weak vessel, but Lord, you choose to use those things that are weak. And I do pray that you would use me today um, to communicate truth from your word. In your name I pray, amen. So let's open our Bibles, whether you got your phone or your Bible, and we're going to read the book of Jude. It is a short book, Um, so we're just going to read. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, 
Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We're going to start with the author. Uh, we know the author is Jude. This is the, the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. And I was telling my husband, if it were me and I was like, related to Jesus, I would probably let people know that. Like if I were related to Chip and Joanna Gaines, just do a little name dropping or something. But Jude wasn't like that. He was a humble man. And probably some of that humility came uh, because he didn't convert until after the resurrection. He did not believe Jesus when he was here on earth. But also not wanting to create jealousy um, in others as if his relationship were somehow more important than others. The date of this book, it was probably written between 67 and 80 AD. Uh, in Peter's writing, he warned that false teachers were coming, and in Jude, they had already come into the church. Um, so the two, letter, two letters are written closely together. Uh, the style of writing is a letter. Uh, we see the greeting, the body, and the closing, and written in a dynamic style. Jude proclaims judgment on the false teachers. He also loves to use analogies, which I'm thankful for because it helps solidify truth in, in my mind. Um, and you're going to see through the text, he loves to use groups of three. He lists things in groups of three. Um, his audience, he doesn't address anyone by name, but it appears he's, dress, he's addressing Jewish Christians who would be familiar with the Jewish history. Uh, Jude's letter was meant to be shared amongst the churches. And we see that Jude had such a heart um, for the believers. The theme of this book is to contend for the faith and beware of false teachers. They were present in every age. He wasn't specific with who these false teachers were, but gave characteristics so that we can identify who these false teachers are. Uh, Moo says the atmosphere of postmodernism in which the church now lives requires us to guard vigilantly against the temptation to welcome heresy in the name of tolerance. So Jude begins his, uh, with a greeting. He identifies himself as a servant of Jesus, and he addresses the believers with three things. This is our first three. Uh, number one, who were called. This is past. He's calling them to remember the time that they came to know Christ as their Savior. Um, we should never be moved beyond the amazement of our salvation. The second thing is beloved in God the Father. This is present. We are so loved by our Father. And then the third thing is kept for Jesus. This is the future assurance that we can cling to. And he's going to develop that at the beginning, and then he's going to come back to it at the end. Um, so you can look through and see Jude asks that mercy, peace, and love, another group of three, be multiplied to the believers. Jude doesn't waste much time getting to the point of his letter. He originally wanted to write this encouraging letter just talking about our salvation and the blessings that we have through our salvation, but he found it necessary to write about these false teachers. I don't know about you, but I love to watch happy movies, like anything happy, especially around Christmas time, the cheesy Hallmark movies, I'll take it, I like them. Um, when a new movie comes out, I'll ask my sisters, is it worth watching? That means, is it a tearjerker? Because if it is, I won't bother with it. I don't like it. 
But I think sometimes we are that way in the real world. When something is heavy, when something is sad, we'd like to bury our heads and, and not worry about it and hope that someone else is going to take care of it. But Jude is writing and saying, I have to warn you because some of you are unaware. And maybe that's why they say Jude is a very neglected book of the New Testament. Um, it's weighty, um, and some of the parts are hard to understand, but all of Scripture is profitable for us, and we need to study all of it. So Jude appeals to them to contend for the faith. This is not something that is passive. The dictionary defines contend as a struggle to surmount a difficulty or danger. Jude is telling them to be on guard and fight because the false teachers have crept in unnoticed. And when I think about that creeping in unnoticed, I just automatically think of spiders. Um, I think it's because you don't see them coming. They're so quiet, and then they're there. Um, and so just have that in mind when you think of these false teachers. No one saw them come into the church. They came in by stealth. They weren't loud, revealing who they really were. Jackie Hill Perry says that false teachers have come and will stay as long as they can. It's their going unnoticed that allows them to continue leading and wooing Christians away from the faith that was delivered to them. So we need to be on guard. We need to know our doctrine. We need to know why we believe it. And that means spending a great deal of time in God's word. So who were these false teachers? They were ungodly people. The second thing, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, only thinking of themselves. They say, maybe I've been saved, now I've got freedom to do whatever I want. The third thing is that they deny our only master and Lord. Obviously, they couldn't come out and just say that, but what they believed meant a denial of who God is. They may have acknowledged Jesus as a good man, a good teacher, but not acknowledging him as the son of God. And without the incarnation, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there is no salvation and no hope for us. This is a big deal. We need to know what we believe. So we're starting to get a picture of who these false teachers were. Verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Someone once said that the Christian life is being reminded over and over again of truth we already know. And how often is that true? We need to be doing that for each other, reminding each other of truth. Um, so Jude points to the Old Testament examples that his audience would have known so well. The first example is the Israelites. Um, God so clearly rescued them, brought them out of Egypt, and after all that, they chose to not believe, and they were destroyed. The second example were the angels that rebelled against God. They've been kept in eternal chains until judgment day. There's a lot of debate over these verses, which we won't get into, but the truth is that these angels chose to rebel against God and are being punished. The third example is Sodom and Gomorrah, who gave into ungodly sexual desires, doing what they pleased in the sexual realm and not following God's clear, God's clear command of one man and one woman for marriage. So these Old Testament examples point to the punishment that they received and that these false teachers will receive um, for the same exact thing. They defiling the flesh like Sodom and Gomorrah, rejecting authority like the Israelites, and blaspheming the glorious ones like the angels did. Wearsby says that unbelief, rebellion against authority, and sen sensual indulgences were sins characteristic of false teachers. Um, verse 9 is kind of another one of those difficult passages that we won't dive into all the arguments, but I just want to give you the main point of this passage. Um, it's contrasting Michael, the archangel, with the false teachers. Michael 
uh, when contending about the body of Moses, didn't pronounce a blasphemous judgment on Satan. He didn't presume to have that kind of authority. He allowed God, who had the authority, to rebuke the devil. And that stands in such stark contrast to the way the false teachers assume authority to blaspheme all they don't understand. They act as animals and do whatever comes instinctively. And Jude says, woe to you. The first example is Cain. He rejected the way of God's salvation and tried to make his own. The second is Balaam, who tried to make money from ministering. And then Korah, who rebelled against God's anointed leaders, in essence, rebelling against God. They did whatever they wanted to do. And so these false teachers do whatever they want. Then we come to word pictures in verses 12 and 13 that help us see why false teachers are so dangerous in our churches. We have six word pictures. The first one is hidden reefs. Um, Just picture a boat moving through the water, and you can't see the reef that's underneath. By the time the boat has already gone, gone over the reef, the damage has been done. And that's how he have brought this example into the false teachers who were taking part of the Lord's Supper. This was supposed to be an intimate time for the believers. Um, And they were coming in without fear, acting as if they were a part of the family of God. The second example is shepherds feeding themselves. These teachers cared only about their own needs. They didn't care about the flock. And what a contrast to our good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. The third one is waterless clouds, promising rain but brings nothing. Okay, before this week we had that drought in the summer and every time the clouds would roll in, we would be like, okay, rain's coming, finally, but it brought nothing. We, we went for a long time without rain. Um, so these false teachers, it looks like rain's coming, but it brings nothing. And that stands in contrast with Isaiah 55.10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. God's word never returns empty, and it always accomplishes its will, unlike what the false teachers were teaching. The fourth word picture is fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted. I think this word picture was probably the strongest for me. And I want us to turn to Psalm 1 uh, for a contrast as to these false teachers. Psalm 1, starting in verse 1, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." The one who is planted by streams of water, their roots go deep down into the soil. And that is such a contrast to the false teacher who have no roots and they have no fruit. Time will always tell where someone is at. Um, Someone who does not know Christ cannot thrive and cannot bear fruit. The fifth word picture is wild waves. They make a lot of noise. Their speech promises so much. But what do they bring up? Isaiah 57.20 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. False teachers just bring up garbage. 
The sixth one is wandering stars. Falling stars are meteors. They shine for a short time, and then they're gone. Verse 14 through 16 tell us that one day they're going to be judged. I love how many times Jude goes through and uses the word ungodly, as if we are forgetting who these people are. But he wants to remind us that they are without Christ. Um, Verse 16 um, starts maybe with some more descriptions of the false teachers that Maybe it should convict our hearts a little bit more. False teachers are grumblers. Grumblers are finding fault with God's plans, purposes, and doings. A malcontent, someone who is dissatisfied and rebellious, following their own sinful desires. Loudmouth boasters and showing favoritism. These are characteristics of the ungodly. They should not be so of us. Verse 17 reminds us that they were warned, so this shouldn't be a surprise. They said that false teachers were coming, so this shouldn't be a surprise to them. Jude has a heavy and weighty content, but it has all been necessary for us to hear. He's going to give us some encouragement after he's given us some of this um, weighty material to help us be discerning and to remain steadfast. Jude calls the believers beloved. He's writing these things because he loves them so much. Um, it's kind of like how I feel about my kids. I discipline and I instruct and I warn my children, not because I hate them, but because I love them and I care what happens to them. And Jude is the same way. Because of his great love for these believers, he is writing to them. It's not pleasant, but it's necessary. So his encouragement to us is, first of all, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Know the word. If you take nothing else away from this workshop today, I hope that you will realize and maybe be challenged with the importance of being in God's word and knowing his word for yourself. We need to be memorizing it, meditating on it, and knowing it. So if someone's teaching something that doesn't line up with scripture, we know. The second thing he says is to pray in the spirit. How can you pray in the spirit? Pray according to the spirit's leading, which comes by knowing truth. Or pray scripture. Psalms is an excellent book to read as you're praying. You can pray those psalms back to the Lord. God's word should inform our prayers and how we pray to God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. When we love God, we'll keep his commandments. As we learn God's word, pray his word, and meditate on his word, our love for him just grows deeper. And then waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be eagerly expecting his return because he will return someday. And we want to be found doing what he has called us to do. Verses 22 through 23 um, give us an exhortation. Um, He is is calling the believers to have mercy on those who doubt. Um, This could be people who are vacillating. They're not sure what is true and what what are lies. And, or maybe these could be baby Christians who don't have very much that they have understood yet. Um, and they need mercy and lots of patience. Spending time with them. Have them in your homes. Encourage them. So Jude instructs us to have mercy on those who doubt. And then save others by snatching them out of the fire. There is a lot more urgency to this. If you're trying to snatch someone or someone out of the fire... There is an urgency to this. It's no longer someone who is not sure what's true and what are lies. They are definitely believing the lies. Um, And they need to be snatched out before they're entrenched in those lies further. And then the third thing he says, On others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by sin. 
This could even be one of the false teachers. They need mercy. Everyone, these unbelievers need mercy from us, just as, as Christ was merciful to us. But he says to watch out for yourself. Like someone who is drowning, you intend to help them, but they may take you down with them. Um, so have fear when you do that, but be reaching out to those who are without Christ. They need truth, and you're the one who can give them truth. We even see Jesus, when he was here on earth, how he interacted so differently with different people. With the Pharisees, he was hard, and he spoke strongly because their hearts were hardened. And then with the tax collectors and prostitutes, he spoke with compassion. Each group needed a savior, but he dealt with them differently. Barnes writes that the direction that amounts to this, while we are to seek to save all, we are to adapt ourselves wisely to the character and circumstances of those who whom we seek to save. And then at last, we get to the benediction. Remember that Jude wanted to write an entire book just about our salvation, but he does give us a wonderful benediction about our salvation. Now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude just got done writing a very serious and somber letter that probably left his audience feeling, am I going to fall too? These false teachers came in, they looked the part, they acted the part, they looked like they should be a believer, but after time they fell away. When I was reading this, I, I thought, I wonder if anyone had Judas in mind. Judas, who walked with Jesus for three years, he looked like one of the apostles, he acted like one of them, he saw Jesus do miracles, he sat at his feet, but in the end, he betrayed him and then hung himself. We have clarity from Gospels that he fell away because he never truly repented of his sins. I'm sure some of you have encountered people in your own churches or maybe in your family that once were faithful and now have walked away from the Lord. We can't see their hearts to know if they are truly God's, but we can see fruit or lack thereof. So what, what's going to keep us from falling away too? And I want you to just listen to these verses in Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is the deciding factor. God is the one who saves. God is the one who draws. And God is the one who preserves us. He is faithful and will sustain me and keep me from stumbling. 
I'm thankful that one day I'll be presented blameless before my Savior, not based on what I've done, not based on my goodness, but based on Christ's sacrifice, and that his righteousness has been credited to my account. And then it ends to the only God, and I love this word, our Savior. He's such a personal God, and he deserves the glory and majesty and dominion and has authority before all time, now and forever. You might ask, of all books, why, why Jude? And how does this even impact my life? I think because Jude loved uh, groups of three, we'll take three things away. I think the first thing I'd love you to take away is we need to love God's word. Um, before anything else, before we're wives, mothers, uh, students, workers, we are children of God. So we should want to study this precious book to dive into God's word and ask him to give us understanding. I think studying whole books at a time is a great way to do it and a wonderful safeguard against false teaching. False teachers love to yank verses here and out here, and they don't expect you to know the context of where it's at. So if you know your Bible and you know what context it is, then you'll be able to prove that what they're teaching is false. Um, I highly recommend... Uh, Jen Wilkins, Women of the Word. She has written a book that has greatly impacted the way I view scripture. And I think she's done a, a great service to us as women to see the importance of Bible literacy. Um, I also love journaling Bibles. These are ones that you can get just one book of, of the Bible and you can mark it up, you can highlight it, you can notice patterns. Um, like in the book of Jude, noticing groups of three, you can mark that up. Um, however you study God's word, be in God's word. You need to know it. The second application, um, many of us in this room are teachers, whether you know it or not. Some of you may not have young children in your home, but have family or children in your churches that you can minister to. As I thought about false teachers, I thought of my own children. Um, who's going to teach them truth from error? It's not the church's job. I don't send them to Sunday school and hopefully they'll get everything that they need. They need to be they need to be learning truth from us at home. It's my husband and I's job to be teaching them, to talk to them. Um, they're being bombarded with so much information, whether it's at school, social media, um, and I cannot save my children as much as I would love to be able to. I can't, but I can do all that I can to teach them that there is a holy God that demands justice be served for my sin, but that Jesus came and took on that penalty that I deserved, and that through faith we can be forgiven. May God grant us grace and strength. And as Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The last thing I hope <clears throat> is an encouragement. Maybe you're walking through a season of weariness. I'm going to be honest with you, the last few months have probably been very hard and heavy, as my husband and I have been happy in the little town of Horton uh, for 12 years, and we planned, we said we planned to stay there forever. That was our heart's desire. Uh, we had a church that loved us, ministry partners who are dear friends, a brand new, big, beautiful home, but God began to stir in our hearts, and only God can do that. And my husband was a, approached by the Engage Network in Des Moines about planting a church, that was not even a thought in our minds. But we prayed and we asked God to make it clear what we should do. God kept opening door after door after door. 
There's so many times I prayed, I'm like, God, could you just close one of these doors so we can just stay? I would love to just stay. But I wanted to stay in a life that was comfortable and stable in a ministry we loved. And it just seemed crazy to leave something like that. But what if my life isn't about being comfortable and stable? What if I was put here to do what my Savior asks of me and to see things with eternal lenses? I have but one life to live, and my heart's desire is to do all that I can to obey my Savior, and that requires sacrifice. I have probably cried more in the last couple months than I ever have. Uh, Leaving sweet friends in a loving church in a big house has made me feel very weary, and at times wondering if I can keep going, and I can't always see what God is doing. That's not what I'm called to do, is to understand every plan that God has for my life. I'm called to obey. And maybe you're here today and you're weary and you're heavy. Maybe it's not a move. Maybe it's your marriage. People don't see what happens behind closed doors. Your marriage may be struggling. Maybe parenting is hard. If you have young children in your home or maybe you have older children that have decided to walk away from the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a pastor's wife and ministry is hard. Hurtful words have been said to you or to your husband And the thought of continuing on just seems to be too much. Wherever you are struggling, you're afraid you're going to trip and fall. Maybe what you need to be reminded of is that God is able to keep us from stumbling. And I want you to listen to these verses from Hebrews 12 because we need encouragement. I can give you a pep talk that might last five minutes, maybe to the end of the day, if I'm lucky. But we need something that's grounded in something someone greater than us. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our eyes have to be fixed on Christ if we are to live this life pleasing to him. Our hope is that Christ, our brother, has gone before us and he has endured as we are now and you look to Jesus. He is our hope, he is our strength, and he will give us endurance that we need for today and for tomorrow, and then the day after that, and the day after that. You can't do it. You can't do it on your own. But because of Christ, he will strengthen us to not stumble. And one day, we're going to see our Savior again, and we're going to see him face to face, and it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Dear Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it will not return void, and I pray that it would encourage hearts here today, and I pray that we would go home changed, that we would go home ready to study your word and to encourage those who need it and to witness to those who are lost and need a Savior. In your name I pray, amen.